And then our scripture reading that's going along with that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 12. Where the apostle writes these words, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, he would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would for that reason it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those with speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is, of course, not no, but eagerly desire the greatest gift, the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way, the way of love. Uh, chapter 13 talks about it. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in a series of lectures at a school in Bonn, Germany, the great theologian Karl Barth uh, began his consideration of the church in, in a rather striking way. He was teaching about the church. And he said this as he began this series of lectures, quote, we must be brief in this section, which by rights ought to be thoroughly treated. Our lecture hours are numbered but perhaps there's no harm in that. Today, there is rather too much than too little said about the church. There is something better. Let us feed the church, unquote. 
And throughout my years of ministry, I have found that those words, while spoken quite a number of years ago, continue to be valid even today. It seems at times that Christians spend so much time talking about what the church is, about structures and programs and organization and focusing and refocusing, about mandates and all the latest available church growth options. All because we kind of see the church shrinking, we wonder what to do about all of that. But the practice of being church sometimes gets neglected. While the purpose of many different studies and ideas about how to organize and get people involved is to make us more effective and efficient as a church, what often seems to happen in reality is that the members sort of get lost in the shuffle. I've heard it all too often from church members who have told me that their leadership has discovered yet another program that, has, that seems to be modern, that's going to save the church, it's going to make the church more attractive to the outside world, and now they're pursuing that, which means there's going to be a lot of discussion and a lot of study about what to do. But meanwhile, they complain about the fact that while the church is busy doing all that, they're not being ministered to in any way. The process of moving into communities at Community CRC is not intended for us to spend endless hours talking about how to do it or what does it mean. But it's a way of looking at our congregation as a group of smaller congregations, all for the purpose of looking after one another all to make it easier for us to be doing what we need to be doing as a church. Fellowshipping, providing pastoral care and diaconal care, discipleship or holding one another accountable for faith formation to the next generation, and then missions, which has always been the task of the church. And a lot of that really doesn't need a whole lot of discussion, but it needs practice. It's more, more, far more important for us to be the church of Jesus Christ in the world rather than it is for us to spend loads of time talking about the church and what it should be and so on. But having said this, it should be stressed that while we ought to indeed be the church, that doesn't minimize the biblical teaching concerning the church. Of course not. If we're going to be the church, we better know what it is and how it ought to function. Basically, the definition of and our being a church are virtually one and the same. It's interesting to note that when the Belgic Confession speaks of the church in Article 27, and if you were here last Sunday evening, you'll know that, it does so in a very active way. It does so using all sorts of verbs. There's nothing static about the church, according to the description found in the confession. And so when Guido de Bray wrote the definition of the church, it wasn't written in terms of a bureaucracy or a building or a government structure, which is how the church of his day would have defined it. Rather, de Bray writes that the church is, quote, a holy congregation and a gathering of true Christian believers, Article 27. And these are people who have been cleansed by Jesus, and these are people who are busy, active, 
involved with the worship of the Lord and with the spreading of the good news, with the preservation of unity and with fulfilling certain obligations to the rest of the body and so on. All of this even in the face of fierce persecution. So being a church member as defined by the question does not mean inactivity. Rather, it means being caught up in a battle in the whole enterprise of the coming of the kingdom. And for some who have gone ahead of us, it means, as the writer of Hebrews put it, that they're sitting, as it were, in the bleachers of heaven, cheering us on as we run the race set before us. For those of us here now, it means running the race with vigor and laying aside everything that would hold us back. So when talking about the church, the Bible, and consequently the confessions, never leave room for quiet spectators or couch potatoes, as we use that term nowadays. So I don't know if you caught it. It struck me by surprise. I've read it many, many times in the charge to the congregation this morning after the ordination of the elders and the deacons. In that charge to you, and you said, yes, to it, it said this, wholeheartedly participate in the ministries into which they, the elders and the deacons, lead you. You said yes to that. I will. We will. The very term church refers to people, God's people, actively engaged in kingdom business. And not saying no. Article 28 of the Belgic Confession gives us a rather typical Reformed definition of the church. It's the gathering of those who are saved, or as 1 Corinthians 12 puts it, those in the church are all baptized by one spirit into one body. This means, of course, that not all that calls itself church is church nor may anyone or everyone claim to be a member of the church. There's all kinds of cults and sects who speak about going to church or who claim to be part of the holy Catholic church, but says the Bible, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If one does not confess Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, a member of the Trinity, the Lord and Savior of his people, and believe it, then one's not part of the church. There's one definite requirement for true church membership, and it's the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is so because just as Jesus taught, it's precisely on that confession, first given by Peter, that the Lord would build his church. So the reformers reaffirm the truth of Scripture that the church is the people, the gathering of those who are saved. They wanted to say that very specifically because the prevalent church in the days of Guido de Bray had a different definition of church. The popular definition of church in those days had to do with structure and rules and tradition and the lines of authority. Because of the massive institution that had been erected, whether there were people present or not, made very little difference. The church always had a presence because the structure was in place, they said, or the priest or a representative of the structure was always present. 
And so the church in those days was not defined on the basis of faith or the people, but on the basis of the structure in place. People became inconsequential to the definition. To define the church on the basis of the people of God was radical, albeit scriptural, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12. The reformers declared and taught the truth that as our children sing it in a song, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together. So whether clergy is present or not, whether a building is present or not, does not take away from the fact that the church is still there. You know, over the years in our denomination, we have talked sometimes about a church that has no pastor, that as a vacant congregation, is a vacant church. It's weird. Nothing could be farther from the truth, really. The church is made up of believers, people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and the pastor is but one of that whole number. Now, once it was established that the church is the gathering of those who are saved, Debray adds, and we have accepted and we have accepted it and confess it, quote Article 28, and there is no salvation apart from it. No one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. Now people have always had problems with this statement and have tried to reject it because for many it smacks of the teachings of Roman Catholic Church of, of Reformation times which taught that those outside of the recognized structure and hierarchy of the church were lost. In other words, the teaching was that unless you were a member in good standing of the Roman Catholic Church, you were condemned for all eternity. If not the actual teaching, then certainly the nonverbal message was that salvation came through the Roman church. And unless you were part of the Roman church and did all the things the church demanded, you really had no future in terms of the new earth. And what followed from such thinking was, of course, that if one were to withdraw from the Roman Catholic church, which was considered to be the only true church, one would be lost for all eternity. You didn't want that. so. No one dared to leave the church. But the reformers challenged such teaching time and again. Opening the Bible, they declared in no uncertain terms that the message of the Bible is clearly that salvation comes by grace through faith. It comes through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and through his work alone. Now, our believing on the Lord Jesus Christ makes us, by definition, a member of the Catholic Church, the universal church. That's what the word Catholic means, universal church, the body of believers that spans the globe, and that cuts through every denomination. This is the body of all true believers which may encompass but actually transcends each and every denomination and church building that dot the countryside. And since the church is the true body of believers, it follows that outside of that body, one is not saved. Now, that's really not such startling language if you really think about it. It's the same as saying, outside of those who are Canadian citizens, there are no Canadian citizens. 
or outside of my family, extended and all, there are no other family members. So outside of the church, the true church, there are no church members. And it's only when one is a member of the true church that one is saved. And that's so because it is through the body of Christ that we are nourished and we even draw our life. The New Testament uses a number of different images such as the human body, 1 Corinthians 12, or the grapevine to explain all this. If we were to cut ourselves off from the body or the grapevine, we would die because we'd lose our source of life. It's the same with the church. If one is a real, true, living member, it will not be possible to withdraw or resign or cut oneself off from the church. If a person is saved, by definition, he or she will always be a member of the church, the holy, catholic, or universal church. Now, when you read the three articles of the Belgian Confession that deal with the church, Articles 27, 28, and 29, you'll notice that there's a shuttle, subtle shift of emphasis. Where at first Debray is speaking about the church invisible, that is the body of believers is scattered all the over the globe and found each in each denomination. In Articles 28 and 29, the emphasis shifts to refer to the visible church. After all, that invisible church, that invisible body, becomes concrete or is demonstrated in the visible church, such as in this congregation or in this denomination. And despite all of its weaknesses and shortcomings, nonetheless, it's in settings such as this one this evening that we see the Church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And so the writer qualifies his definition of church a little by suggesting that the true church, of course, is those of who are saved, but visibly it is those, as one writer put it, quote, who have the right doctrine and discipline, who edify each other with their talents, and who in general bow under the yoke of Jesus Christ, unquote. This visible assembly, like we have before us this evening, unlike the invisible church, includes believers and unbelievers. That's the way it is. The wolves live among the sheep. There's wheat among the tares, to use some of the biblical terminology. There are those who partake of everything in the church, who appear to be true believers. I've known a number of them over the years, but they're not real members, because in their heart they just simply do not believe the gospel. They reject it. But just because there's hypocrites in the church or unbelievers, and just because there are things going on that we may have problems with, nonetheless, if a church passes the true marks, as we're going to study them in Article 29, then says the confession, we are obliged to join and to work for unity and to use our gifts and talents. After all, there simply is no other expression of the church. And we were, after all, saved to serve. Now that was an important message for the people of the Debra of Debray's days, for there were those who had withdrawn themselves from the Roman Catholic Church, and they declared they didn't need the church anymore. They could be Christians on their own. And because of the corruption present in the church of the day, there were those who in reaction didn't want anything to do with the church. 
these realities are with us today too. We know of people, perhaps even in our own families, who don't want anything to do with the organized church for a multitude of reasons. It's an interesting and a growing phenomenon. There's even such a thing as church for those who don't like church. The reformers have always challenged lone rangers. In Article 28, the writer blends the two realities of the invisible and the visible church, and he does so to get across the seriousness or importance of joining the A church. And then he uses such words as obligated and duty when he speaks about what a believer must do. Someone who is a Christian must be a member of a church, a true church, as defined by Article 29. Debray, echoing the teachings of 1 Corinthians 12, tries to impress upon his readers how strange or perverse even it is to attempt to be a Christian by oneself. It would be something like playing tennis without an opponent. It's like trying to be a spouse by yourself. Like trying to be, and some of you have heard this example before, a continuously glowing coal that's being lifted out of the barbecue and placed aside from the rest of the charcoal. The light will go out. The coal will grow cold. And since the visible church, the Christian Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church in America, the Mennonites, the Lutherans, the Pentecostals, the Baptists, whatever you, the church for those who don't like church, is all that one can join that's exactly what should be done. It's hard to fulfill one's obligations to Christ and to, out, and to the kingdom outside the visible church. And it's only when we fulfill our obligations that we demonstrate the reality and the riches of our communion with Jesus Christ. A piece of charcoal all by itself, far away from the barbecue, will not be much help in cooking the meat. It's only useful if it joins with the rest. So in some sense with church and our membership, no one ought to be, says the writer, content to be by him or herself. Actually, we can't really be by ourselves because we are by definition as believers part of the body of Christ. And we are duty bound to join the church. That's a really tough message to understand in an individualistic society such as ours. People in relationship and community-focused cultures understand what Article 28 is getting at, but not so much in ours. And I really don't have any answers as to how to get people to understand the importance of the church other than us really being church. And that's what we're trying to do as smaller communities inside of this large gathering. In spite of how tough it is to live out the teaching concerning the importance of the church, the Reformed churches have never rescinded this teaching of the confession. And it's probably one of the articles that are, are, is a backdrop to our system of church membership and so forth. We are duty bound to join the visible church and we think that's important. And not only are we duty-bound to join the visible church, which is a visible expression of the body of Christ, but because it is a visible expression of the body of Christ, we're also obliged to keep the unity of the church, 
part of the body. And such unity is preserved through instruction and discipline, through the hearing of God's word and through studying it. Regular worship and regular attendance of worship is important for unity in the faith, listening to one another, understanding one another, Discipline in terms of looking after one another and keeping each other from sin also helps us to be united. By bending our necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ is yet another way to preserve the unity of the body, says the confession. And by saying this, Debray is thinking of making sure that our will and our actions are in line with the will and actions of Jesus so basically living in obedience to the Lord Jesus who gave his life for us. And finally, the unity of the church is enhanced through the building up of one another. That was the secret to the growth and unity of the New Testament church. In the book of Acts, we read about a selfless giving among the members of the body. A certain self-denial and putting the other person first is necessary in the life of the church. And when we do this, then indeed we're going to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice and care for those in need. Never may we say, as 1 Corinthians teaches, that we have no need of so and so. All are necessary for the proper functioning of the body. And all of this sounds like the goals and the aims of our community. It's not that far-fetched approach to ministry after all. Church of Jesus Christ is not a structure, it's not a club, it's not an ethnic group, it's the gathering of those who are saved, the gathering of those for whom Jesus gave his life, as we will celebrate in the sacrament next Sunday morning. And this gathering is manifested, whether we like it or not, in the local congregation or in the local church such as this and it's manifest in a denomination like Christian Reformed Church. And such a body of believers is then called upon, of all things, to separate from those who do not belong to the church. Such a body is called to be separate. After all, its lifeline is Jesus, the branch. And there's a loads of activities in the body of Christ and all that activity is geared to the glory of the Lord, to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven and the edification of the saints and the members of the church. And of such a body, the true believer confesses, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, the true believer confesses that he or she is and always will be a living member. Be of the church party of to be the church means that we are body of Christ, and it calls upon us to fulfill obligations and to live it out to the glory of His name. Amen. Father in heaven, as we hear this confession, it puts all kinds of questions in our minds. It seems so countercultural. We ask, O oh Lord, for a good understanding of what it means to be church. And we ask also that you would help us to be church, to live out your will in our lives and throughout this community so that others too may know that we belong to Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would protect your people, 
that you would protect the church. We know that you do and that you will, even to the day when you return. And we look forward to that day, O Lord, when all things will be made new and when we will live with you for all eternity. We ask, Lord, that you would watch over us as we go from this place. We pray for your grace. We pray for your peace. We pray for your presence. And we pray, O Lord, that you would protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.